0: This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. You don't need me to tell you that these are anxious times. War, climate change, mass migration, geopolitical turmoil, biodiversity loss, economic insecurity... The lingering effects of one pandemic and the inevitability of another at some point. And, well, you get the picture. Very big, very human problems that require human solutions. And as if we didn't have enough problems to contend with, we went and invented another, artificial intelligence. A threat that seemed rather far off until the seismic shift brought by an AI chatbot called ChatGPT. It's been enough to make a renowned pioneer of AI, the University of Toronto's Geoffrey Hinton, resign from his position at Google so he could speak openly about his fears of the threat it could pose to humanity, as he did with the CBC's Adrian Arsenault.
1: I think there are things to be worried about. There's all the normal things that everybody knows about, but there's another threat that's rather different from those, which is if we produce things that are more intelligent than us... How do we know we can keep control? And what tends to happen when... Well, if we're talking about evolution, all these species are evolving, and what tends to happen is it doesn't go well for the less intelligent species. The other one kills it? Not necessarily. Ants look after aphids because they produce honey, but... Ants are in charge. Ants are in charge, yes.
0: Many of our most profound problems need more than human solutions. They need solutions from science, too. And that can make things even trickier, because our society's relationship with science is complicated. Our lives may be thoroughly infused with and embedded in science and technology. But misinformation and distrust of science run rampant, much of it stoked, ironically, by what we do with our pocket-sized packets of supercharged science called smartphones.
1: My name is Martin Rees, and I've spent much of my life as a university professor, mainly in Cambridge, uh, studying astronomy and physics and space science.
0: Martin Rees is, in fact, one of the world's most eminent astronomers. He serves as Astronomer Royal in the UK, along with being a member of the House of Lords. He argues... That our future rests on humanity and science working together in a mutual understanding.
1: Indeed, the crises confronting the world can't be tackled without more and better directed science. So, if we're scientists seeking to understand the world as well as change it, what are our responsibilities? How can our efforts be optimized? How should we engage with the public and with government? How should we teach and inspire the next generation?
0: Martin Rees's latest book is called If Science Is To Save Us. I began our conversation by asking about times when science has saved us in the past.
1: Well, of course, uh, the most obvious thing I'd say is that the population of the world has doubled uh, in the last 50 years. And around um, 1970, there were books written by the Club of Rome and by Paul Ehrlich who claimed that there was mass starvation in the 70s and 80s. Uh, But, of course, uh, the Green Revolution uh, did enable more food to be grown. And it's true that there is starvation in many parts of the world now, uh, but it's due to maldistribution or wars, not to overall food shortage. So uh, that's the most obvious case where if we hadn't had uh, modern science, uh, the world population would not have been able to grow to as much as $8 billion.
0: Mm-hmm. So that was the science that did the saving. But what is it about that particular situation or that particular knowledge that made it possible to save us?
1: Well, I think we've got to bear in mind that uh, science is a way of understanding the world. And understanding the world is a precondition for being able to change the world. But the main theme of my book is that uh, the changes which science enables us to do Uh, can be beneficial but can also be disastrous. And the main thing is to uh, choose among the various things that science can do um, and ensure we can secure the benefits. And we know with all the benefits of technology which stem from science that there are severe downsides and we've got to minimise those. But I think if we look at the modern world, uh, then we know how it depends, obviously, on 19th century discoveries like electricity um, and also on 20th century discoveries. And some of those, nuclear, for instance, have been potentially disastrous as well. And, of course, telecommunications, uh, which has changed the world completely, especially now, and computers. These are adaptations of technology in a very sophisticated way Uh, which empower us in all kinds of ways. And, of course, the other thing that's happened is that medicine has not cured all diseases, of course, but it's allowed average life expectancy to increase. It's greatly decreased infant mortality, etc. And on the whole, I think we would say that science has benefited us uh, in a way that uh, indicates that we've made use of the good things it can do, and avoided the most disastrous things it could have done.
0: And of course, there's no greater example of the medical uh, intervention in improving our lives than the most recent one, which is you know, the formulation of vaccines with the pandemic.
1: Well, that's right, although some people would say that the uh, propensity to mass pandemics is a consequence of the fact that we can travel more and pandemics can spread from one continent to another due to aircraft. So the fact that a pandemic can spread globally is, of course, a downside of the development of Mm. technology, which allows us to move around the world. But, of course, as you say, the achievement of uh, vaccines within a year was a great achievement, especially if you realize that we don't have a vaccine for HIV even after 40 years. Mm
0: -hmm. I think in many ways the irony or the instability of holding those two thoughts in our mind, of science being both beneficial and negative, is, is one of the biggest problems of our time.
1: Yes, but it's not surprising, is it, really? Because science is uh, ethically neutral as such, Mm -hmm. and the way we apply it depends on social organization, economic organization, and obviously science has enabled weaponry of war to get more catastrophic, but also it's provided all these benefits. Mm
0: -hmm. I guess in in terms of thinking about what what the compact is between society and scientists, is it your belief that science is still in a position to save us?
1: Yes, I think so. But of course, you talk about the compact. I mean, I think a manifestation of that is that governments feel it's worthwhile to uh, support lots of science education in universities, to support research institutes, to um, develop new technology, etc. And I think we are in a world where the dangers are growing. They're growing because we have a larger population, a population which is more demanding of energy resources, and we do have to ensure that everyone can be fed. We want to extend life expectancy if we can, at least minimise premature deaths. And, of course, um, high on the agenda now is uh, coping with climate change, and that certainly needs development of a, a new clean technology. And many of the basic ideas that are needed for that already exist, but actually turning them into some economical way of generating energy, not just in the developed countries of the North, but in the global South, is a huge challenge to technology and politics.
0: How much do you think does science need to save us from ourselves?
1: Well, I, mean, uh, I think in the ways I've been discussing, that uh, if it's applied beneficially, it can help. But of course, uh, all the weapons which have been devised are in a sense, developed from uh, scientific ideas, supremely the uh, n- nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so obviously they can be um, used dangerously. And if we look at what's happened in the 21st century, um, I-, I worry very much about the misuse of biotech because the uh, same kind of knowledge which allowed us to identify the virus of Covid nineteen and to produce a vaccine against it would allow scientists of evil intent to develop a virus more virulent and more transmissible than the natural ones. We're kidding ourselves if we think that those with technical expertise will all be balanced and rational. Expertise can be allied with fanaticism, not just the kind of fundamentalism with which we are currently familiar but that's exemplified by some New Age or conspiracy theorists and the like. And there'll be individuals with the mindset of those who now unleash computer viruses. The mindset of arsonists. The global village will have its village idiots. In a future era of vast individual empowerment, when even one malign or foolish act could be one too many, how can our open society be safeguarded? The raising empowerment of tech-savvy groups, or even individuals, by biotech and by cybertech as well, will pose an intractable challenge to governments and aggravate the tension between three values we cherish. That's freedom, privacy, and security. The world was underprepared for COVID-19. More broadly, it's unprepared for the intellectual, moral, and practical challenges that are posed by burgeoning biotechnology. These challenges call for clear thinking and well-crafted policies which recognise both its stupendous potential boon to human flourishing, but also its stupendous potential risk to human safety, indeed to humanity itself. It's an arena where the regulations that ethics and prudence require may not only prove controversial, but nearly impossible to enforce. And that's scary. And I think we're going to have to give up privacy because we can't take the risk of even a single person trying to develop some uh, very dangerous pathogen. Yeah. I'd
0: like to talk about what you call these global mega challenges in your book. And the first one, as you mentioned, is biodiversity loss. And and connected with that, how to feed an ever-growing global population When you look at the scope of the problems that have plagued humanity in recent centuries, where would you place that as a
1: threat? Well, of course, there have always been famines. There have always been uh, pandemics. But uh, now that the world is more crowded, uh, for the first time, we are empowered and numerous enough to have an effect on the entire planet Uh, until 100 or 200 years ago the population of the world uh, wasn't really affecting the natural world overall very much. Whereas, as we now know, uh, we are encroaching on the natural habitats around the world, forests, etc., and reducing the diversity of species which can exist. And also, uh, we are taking so much energy from fossil fuels uh, that we are change in the Earth's climate. Mm
0: -hmm. How close do you think science is to solving some of the fundamental problems posed by this, you know, in the effort to find a greater solution that could actually mitigate the problem of possibly us, you know, having too many people and not enough resources?
1: Well, well, on the population issue, which is important, the population has been growing fast over most parts of the world. It's now leveled off in uh, most countries in the global north, mm-hmm. the only places where population growth is fast, in the sense that the birth rate is much higher than the replacement level, are sub-Saharan Africa and parts of India. And uh, the trends during the rest of this century in those parts of the world are going to be crucial for the balance between different regions, because um, if the population in Africa doubles, then so if that's combined with changes in climate, which makes some parts of the world uninhabitable, this is going to cause mass migration and huge changes in uh, entire global politics.
0: Yes, but but what hints do you have currently that we have the science, or will have the science, to tackle these issues in terms of dealing with, you know, how to feed an ever-growing population?
1: Um, Well, we do have the science. It's really, we need to... Uh, have the economics as well. We know that we can have intensive agriculture, uh, which will allow uh, more food to be grown without encroaching on natural forests. We know also uh, that we can uh, even make artificial meat now, which uh, is an ethical advantage and also greater efficiency. Uh, so we know that we can do these things, just as uh, we know we can um, vaccinate everyone in the world against lots of diseases. And what is inhibiting the rapid deployment of these uh, advances is politics and economics.
0: So to take the one example that you provided, you know, the, there's the prospect of artificially grown meat yes. cultured from a few cells in a lab. And, and there is kind of a, a high ick factor for a lot of people. How do you respond to the opposition to those kinds of things or the distaste for those kinds of things?
1: You're quite right about that because um, people may not take it on. and It could be that uh, it's expensive to make and it's only used as pet food. <laughs> that won't be a huge <laughs> advantage. But uh, I think everyone accepts that um, eating beef is something which uh, many of us enjoy. But it would not be possible for the 9 billion people who will be on the planet by mid-century to eat beef at the rate that the average American does today without using up too much land and producing too much CO2 and all the rest of it. So there's got to be some changes in diet and, uh, of course, an increase in food production if those who are now undernourished are to be fed properly.
0: So what is the persuasive argument t- to the people who argue that you can't depend on technology when it's unproven or, or, or hasn't been developed and and that we what we really have to do is change the economy and our way of life?
1: Well, I think we're seeing this in the in the case of climate change, which, of course, is a serious political issue. And um, the challenge is to get governments to accept that we've got to be far-sighted enough to care about the lives of our grandchildren and to make perhaps some sacrifices now uh, in terms of our choice of how we spend government money and invest in order to ensure that uh, we don't leave a depleted world for our descendants. So it's really an issue of uh, politics and ethics, ensuring that government funds are spent on the kind of things which will be beneficial to future generations. Most of us are aware of a heritage we've been left by past generations. And we'd be depressed, I think, if we thought there'd be not many generations to come. We should be good ancestors, and we have a moral imperative not to leave a depleted inheritance for our successors.
0: What about the opposition to things like, you know, GMO in, in food production or nuclear power to address climate yes. change?
1: Yes. Um, uh, well, GMO, I think, is interesting because I think most people would say that the opposition is, for GMO in plants is pretty irrational. Uh, and in fact, the uh, European Union has banned it completely and... Uh, I think that that's clearly over the top because um, in the US, nearly 300 million people have lived for 30 years doing a vast control experiment on the use of those uh, GM crops um, with no manifest detriment. And so that's an example where I think the uh, hostility is irrational. I mean, it's based on a sort of precautionary principle that if something could conceivably go, go wrong, uh, then we shouldn't do the technology at all. So we've got to have a balance and, and accept some slight risk, but but not too many. And, and I think um, in the case of GM, then I think the balance in Europe has shifted too far against them. Nuclear is interesting. But in the case of nuclear energy and nuclear power, um this is an issue which um divides people at all levels of expertise the general public has uh, diverse views but uh among experts similarly there are diverse views as i know from the time when i was uh, president of the royal society the british academy uh, we didn't have a party line on whether we should be pro nuclear power stations or against them because um even the experts were divided and so that's an example of uh, a technology where it's going to be very hard to get agreement because, as you know, in different countries, uh, the policy changes. The the Germans have just decided a few years ago to abandon their nuclear power, etc. And so that's an example of a a political decision, um, which is a very difficult one. And scientists who try to advise governments, they have a very difficult choice because they have to make the point that it's a balance of probabilities. And we Uh, have to make judgments without knowing what's correct. And that was true, of course, of the medics at the beginning of the pandemic. They didn't quite know what was going to happen. They didn't know how quickly they would develop a vaccine, uh, but they had to give the best advice they could at the time. Uh, So uh, when there's something urgent, then you have to take a decision. But when things are very long term, uh, like uh, uh, how are we going to get power in the second half of the century, uh, then of course, we do have to Uh, Take account, you know, can we improve nuclear power to make it safer and cheaper um, or not?
0: Whose job is it, do you think, to dispel the misconceptions about technologies like GMO?
1: Well, I think that that's an educational issue and going down to the schools. I think people need to understand what's involved and why most experts are relaxed about GM crops. Um, But, of course, why at the same time they're not at all relaxed. About the idea of of using gene editing on humans. Uh, So, we've got to understand a bit of the technology in order to understand what regulations they should support. Um, But the other problem which arises, particularly in the the case of climate, uh, is that we have to think ahead a long time, because, of course, to build new power stations of any kind. It's a big construction project. And uh, if you want to bring down the cost of solar or wind energy so that it can be afforded by developing countries uh, so that they can leapfrog directly to clean energy, just as they have leapfrogged directly to uh, smartphones and never had landlines, that's uh, something which requires a, a rebalancing of our technological effort. And uh, one point which applies especially to... Um, these long-term concerns about climate change, they tend to slip down the agenda of politicians because politicians have urgent issues and they care about what's going to happen the next election, but they don't necessarily prioritize something which uh, is going to have an effect 20 or 30 or 50 years ahead. That's the problem. And they will only take action which benefits people in the long term if they think voters will support it. And so I think it's very important that scientists should try to ensure the public understands the long-term threats and the ways we can uh, avoid or at least uh, mitigate them. And most scientists aren't very charismatic, and when they try to be political advisors, they perhaps um, don't get enough political attention if the politicians have urgent things to worry about. And that's why um, we depend on having some charismatic influences. And I mention in my book a rather sort of disparate quartet of people who collectively have had quite a big influence on making the public take climate change more seriously. These four are um, Pope Francis, who Mm -hmm. um, through his encyclical made people care about uh, the whole of creation, not just humanity, and also influenced the um, conference in Paris in 2015. Our secular Pope David Attenborough is another one because his TV programs have certainly um, alerted a very wide public to the reality of climate change and also to loss of biodiversity and other degradation of the environment like ocean pollution. And the third one is Bill Gates, who is a respected Technical figure who has written very sensibly and seriously about what is feasible. And uh, in particular, incidentally, he's talked about how we can make a better fourth generation of uh, nuclear power stations, which are safer than the, the present ones. And the fourth is Greater Thornburg, who, of course, has influenced mm-hmm. the younger generation. And I think because of those four people, the um, priority of dealing with climate change on the political agenda has risen. And uh, even the rhetoric of business has changed, though business perhaps isn't uh, doing enough yet. But uh, those influences have indirectly uh, affected government because the government does care what the average voter thinks. The UK's initially rather confused response to COVID-19 demonstrated how ill well prepared our country was to cope with emergencies. Pandemics are unpredictable, but not hugely improbable. Moreover, we need to be mindful of a range of other catastrophes, some global, others regional or local, like cyber attacks, grid breakdowns, radiation releases, failures of old infrastructure or floods. They're rare enough to be easily ignored, even though the worst of them could be so devastating that one occurrence is one too many. It's a wise mantra that the unfamiliar is not the same as the improbable. On a national level, we need to rebalance the trade-offs between resilience and efficiency. For instance, if manufacturers depend on supply chains spanning the world and on just-in-time delivery, they're vulnerable to a break of one link in one chain. We should shift from just-in-time to just-in-case. It may be efficient to routinely have high Occupancy of intensive care bids in hospital, but this is imprudent as it leaves too little spare capacity for emergencies.
0: Martin Rees is an emeritus professor of cosmology and astrophysics at the University of Cambridge. His latest book is If Science is to Save Us. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Ideas is a broadcast and a podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find hundreds of past episodes of Ideas on the CBC Listen app and on our website. I'm Nala Ayad. In his distinguished academic career spanning more than five decades, Martin Rees has seen science create and solve problems on a grand scale. But even he is daunted by the scale and scope of the problems we face today. Some, like climate change or biodiversity loss, are caused by the demands humanity is placing on the Earth. Others, like the prospect of -of out-of-control artificial intelligence or rogue biotechnology, we can blame on our own cleverness with science itself. If science is to save us, governments and the public need to understand science so they can make informed decisions about what it can and can't and should and shouldn't do. But even though we live our lives today in such an intimate embrace with science, Reese is dismayed by how little most politicians and members of the public pay attention to science. And he thinks that when scientists do command the headlines, such as when the Nobel Prizes are awarded, it creates a distorted picture of how science works.
1: Nobel Prizes are given in certain areas of science, and they're given uh, to never more than three people. And sometimes it is unfair if something is collaborative or if several individuals independently came up with more or less the same work at the same time. And It's also misleading because the public thinks that the winners of Nobel Prizes are all great intellects. Some of them are, but some of them are just lucky or some of them have been part of some long-term projects which didn't require any intellect different from the average university professor. So it's misleading that the public gets the impression that there's a big gap between the few geniuses who get these prizes and all the rest. Uh, But I think it's important to realize that science is a collective endeavor and the benefit one has is one's contributing to something which is durable.
0: Rees also believes some of the splashiest, most sensational science, such as space travel, is misdirected and a distraction from the urgent work scientists need to do to address the biggest problems here on planet Earth.
1: The practical case for sending people into space is getting weaker all the time. It's far more expensive, they've got to be supported in space, and humans have to be brought back. I've argued that the sending of humans into space should receive no taxpayers' funds. So I think space flight by humans should be left to the private sector, to Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and their ilk. there would still be many volunteers, some perhaps even accepting one-way tickets. Musk himself says he wants to die on Mars, but not on impact. But, and here I disagree with Musk, don't ever expect mass emigration from Earth. It's a dangerous delusion to think that space offers an escape from the Earth's problems. Dealing with climate change on Earth is a challenge, but it's a doddle compared to terraforming Mars. There's no planet B for ordinary risk-averse people.
0: Here's the second part of my conversation with Martin Rees. You say that it's not just a, a moral obligation, but it's in the rich world's interest to to make sure that developing countries don't suffer disproportionately from things like climate change or famines and disease.
1: Well, well, I think um, it's not just altruism, because um, if we think of uh, the impoverished people in the in Africa, etc. They may not have toilets, etc. But the one thing they do now have is the internet. So they know what life is like for the rest of us. They know the injustice of their fate. And they're going to be embittered if their conditions uh, remain far, far worse than those of the global north. And so I think to ensure that uh, there's a reduction in the huge inequality between the uh, rich countries and the poor countries... Uh, Well, I think it's an ethical imperative. Just as incidentally, I think we should reduce the inequalities within countries. But it's also, uh, I think, essential if we want to have a peaceful world. uh, We don't want billions of embittered and disaffected people in it. So I I think that's going to uh, motivate efforts to um, ensure that the global south catches up. And also, it's not bad economics either, because if we, we can, in conjunction with experts in those countries, uh, develop more efficient or more economical clean energy or energy storage and all the things we need for a carbon zero economy, uh, then, of course, um, the huge market is going to be in the global south, which is where the population is growing. There's no point in us in the north achieving global zero if at the same time uh, the countries of the global south are uh, developing economically, as you want them to do, but doing this by having more coal parcelations. Uh, we'll have CO2 emissions in that case, which are at least as high in 2050 as they are now, but they were just becoming then from the uh, countries of the global south and no longer dominated by the global north.
0: Mm-hmm. I found it interesting you talking about in your book the fact that to solve some of these problems national governments had to give up some of their sovereignty. Yes. Can you speak to the apparatus available and what's missing on the international stage to tackle some of these problems and deal with them as kind of global scientific problems?
1: Well, of course we do have a lot of international uh, organizations, well the UN and its agencies clearly um and um to take two others the World Health Organization, uh, which I think perhaps needs to be empowered more so it can cope better with uh, uh, identifying pandemics early. But that's an obvious organization which uh, has a transnational uh, remit. And, of course, the International Atomic Energy Agency, um, which uh, applies universal regulations which are normally enforced and which is able to inspect uh, nuclear facilities. Um, so we need to try and have similar international regulation um, for other transnational uh, activities. Of course, the internet and all that is an example. And there the concern now is that it's dominated by a few companies which uh, straddle the world. And so they're not in a nation. And that means we can't tax them properly and we can't regulate them properly. And I think if we are going to have effective action on climate change... We need to have some organization which actually monitors whether countries are complying with the pledges they make. Because at the COP conferences on climate change, uh, nations make pledges. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've got to make sure that they actually meet those and enforce them. And that's going to need some kind of international body, just as health does, because um, these global problems don't respect national boundaries, obviously.
0: Mm-hmm. Just on a changing gears a, a little bit. Of course, we've we've been hearing and reading about the potential dangers of artificial intelligence, especially with the emergence of uh, AI chatbots like yes. ChatGBT. You've made it clear that it's not all downsides and threats with biotech uh, and AI. There's a lot of promise to improve our lives as well. And you touched on this a little bit, but how do you balance the promise and the threats to put the brakes on the stuff that could be dangerous without stifling what is worthwhile research?
1: Well, the simple answer to that is only with great difficulty (laughs) Um, because the the, uh, technologies are sort of, in the jargon, they're dual use. They can be used for benefits or they can uh, cause cause great damage. And so um, this is a a challenge for for governments. And um, the things you need to make a cyber attack are just computers, which are widespread, and to make a, a dangerous biological pathogen an engineered virus uh, would take the kind of labs that exist in many universities and industries. Even if we do have regulations on what shouldn't be done in those labs, enforcing those regulations mm-hmm. is going to be very, very hard indeed. Uh, we we'll think of the lack of success in um, enforcing globally the tax laws or the drug laws, for instance. Yes, and it'll be just as hard to uh, ensure. Safety of uh, of work being done in biological labs around the world,
0: but again, where does that conversation? Where should that conversation be had?
1: Well, I think obviously in the United Nations, but I I think formulating the regulations is the kind of thing where scientists themselves can do a lot. I mean, international academies can get together. As I say, I I was head of the British uh, uh, version of that, the Royal Society, and these academies do get together and they uh, decide what are appropriate regulations for um, some of these dangerous technologies. Um, But, of course, they themselves don't have uh, clout unless governments uh, take their advice. But they can certainly help in uh, formulating appropriate regulations and, of course, in alerting the public and alerting politicians to new dangers which emerge. But, of course, um, this requires a competent and well-advised government and also an electorate, uh, which is either prepared to trust the government uh, or is itself sufficiently educated to appreciate the reasons why we do need to do certain things and to constrain certain kinds of activities um, and uh, modify energy production, things like that. Uh, so I, I think uh, it need, needs all all those things to happen in order to to safely cope with these new technologies and use them beneficially.
0: A lot of people would say that governments should set policy on issues like public health and climate change and the environment and and technology, according to scientific evidence. Where do you come down on this? Like, how big a role should scientists play in shaping policy?
1: Well, I mean, obviously, their input is essential in deciding what the consequences are of given action, whether this is um, releasing a pathogen or releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and all that. So so the scientific advice is, is essential. Uh, but, of course, politicians um, have to take into account uh, not just the science, but the economics and the social consequences. I mean, if we go back to the pandemic, um, the scientists, I think, acquitted themselves very well uh, in giving advice to the government. But, of course, um, the um, downside was the closure of schools and uh, a loss of, of wealth, et cetera. And so there was a trade-off, and certainly in, in my country and I think perhaps in yours as well, yes. uh, there was a, a big question about uh, how long one should uh, have lockdowns and quarantine um, because that may reduce the number of uh, uh, of cases of COVID, but it may also do um, uh, damage to the education of uh, kids or their mental health if it closes mm-hmm. school. So those are the kind of things where the politicians need to listen to the scientists, but, the, but their job is very difficult because they've got to uh, balance that against um, the other things. And a point which I think scientists do realise and certainly need to realise is that the scientific input is only one element of any big decision that politicians have to make. But I think science education is very important, um, and uh, it's important that people, all voters, should at least have some feel for science, because more and more of the decisions politicians have to take, uh, whether they're about health or energy or the environment, clearly have a scientific dimension. If public debate is to rise above mere sloganeering, everyone needs to have enough of a feel for science to avoid becoming bamboozled by propaganda and bad statistics. The need for proper debate will become ever more acute in the future as presses on the environment and presses resulting from misdirected technology get more diverse and more threatening. In this respect, one of the most frightening outcomes from the era of Trump and his ilk, has been a death of facts. In today's post-truth era, when there's little agreement on what defines reliable sources, we may have to take inspiration from Galileo, who, perhaps apocryphally, was reported, after being forced to deny that the earth goes round the sun, to have muttered, and yet it moves. This was a rallying cry, a reminder that in spite of what you may believe, the facts always remain the same. And I would say also um, that there's another equally important reason uh, for science education, uh, which is that um, we ought to understand the world around us. We ought to understand human anatomy. We ought to understand the nature of the physical world um, and uh, maybe even the universe. And so I think it's very important to uh understand science to understand the world we're living in um and also I think to understand science because um it is um something which is a great cultural value, and science has the virtue that it's um something which spans all nations you know protons and proteins are the same uh, whether you're in the west or in China, and so we should focus on those as part of culture um as well as being of practical use. Um, and also something which tends to bridge uh, barriers. Indeed, um, one has found throughout history that the scientists have been able to span uh, national divides more readily than any other segment of society.
0: Mm -hmm. My sense, given the experience that we just went through with the pandemic, Mm -hmm. is that one of the most urgent um, public education aspects of this is the scientific method and the uncertainty that's associated with how science develops or how our knowledge develops.
1: Yes, I completely agree that uh, some people think that scientists know all the answers. Obviously, they don't. They're, they're groping still, um, but they probably are more worth listening to than the average person in the street. Um, but, but I think one has to uh, emphasize that sometimes the science is pretty clear uh, whereas sometimes it's still very uncertain. Uh, and also, um, when one is doing science, one has to realize that uh, there are some problems we're trying to solve which we can expect to solve fairly quickly. And there are some problems which are deeply important for the natural world uh, <laughs> which uh, are going to be very difficult. And indeed, some is maybe beyond the human brain completely. We can be helped a bit by AI and all that, but maybe not too much.
0: Going back to the question of scientists' involvement in in policymaking, Mm. you know, you know more than anyone, perhaps, that scientists have been telling political leaders for quite some time about the urgency of addressing climate change Mm. um, and a number of other uh, of of these issues. Yet there doesn't seem to be, as you pointed out, you know, this political appetite or even, you know, the ability to look far enough ahead to deal with these issues. Mm. At what point... Is it appropriate for scientists to speak out, to actually be activists and demand that governments take action on things like climate change or other urgent issues?
1: Well, I think they should speak out. But as I say, I think they have a bigger effect if they um, get their voice amplified by um, uh, these charismatic figures. But uh, the main point is is it's a big ask uh, if the public is going to be told that um, this may cost something in the short run, but it's for the benefit of future generations.
0: So it isn't for the average scientist to be an activist?
1: Um, Well, I think uh, scientists should be concerned citizens. They should be activists, um, but I think they can do better in just advising. But I think it's important for scientists to realize that uh, they are specialists. And um, when they move outside their area of specialization, then they are just citizens. So uh, they should be uh, responsible citizens, but they should realize that their expertise is limited to a particular area
0: in in your public role your role as a public intellectual how would you describe your role as a scientist on on the public stage
1: well i should say that i'm not a sort of charismatic influencer so i don't do that <laughs> but i have been involved obviously in um, government committees and things like that and also having the chance to uh, to speak to a lot of the younger generation of of students. And uh, and I think in doing that sort of thing, one can emphasize things outside one's expertise, uh, even though realizing that, as I said, we don't have special rights to be heard there, simply because everyone ought to be more concerned about these global issues. I mean, everyone in the world ought to surely care about what the world will be like when their grandchildren grow old, uh, that we shouldn't um, leave a depleted heritage to future generations when we bear in mind how much we have benefited from the heritage of previous generations. I think we have an obligation to uh, to enlighten people. And, and of course, the other reason I do that is because I think that uh, the ideas of science are fascinating um, and uh, quite apart from their practical application. I think it's very sad that people don't realize, um, you know, the wonders of Darwinian evolution and uh, and the fact that we now know that there are billions of planets like the Earth orbiting other stars and all these things, they certainly fascinate a wide public. And as an astronomer, of course, I'm lucky because astronomy is one of these subjects, I guess um, ecology is another one, which has a sort of fairly positive public image. Yes. Say you're a nuclear scientist. People might be a bit ambivalent, but I think uh, uh, the sciences like like astronomy, they have a wide um, uh, amateur following, of course. If I'm on a plane or a train, I don't want to speak to my neighbor. I say, I'm a mathematician. If I'm happy to speak to them, I say, I'm an astronomer. And then the first question I'll be asked is, uh, do you think we're alone in the universe? Or are there aliens? <laughs> and of course, that's a question I can't answer. Yes. <laughs> Although, incidentally, I hope we will get some better ideas about the likelihood of that during this century. That's why the subject is so exciting. Yeah. As long as you're
0: not mistaken as an astrologer.
1: Right, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And I think there's a message for education here because young kids are fascinated by some things. They're fascinated by dinosaurs and by space, both blazingly irrelevant to everyday lives, but, <laughs> but they fascinate young kids. I you know this, but I, I don't know if you've got any yourself, but I, I know some five-year-olds who know different species of dinosaurs when they can barely read. It's so true. Um, But the important thing is to ensure that the teaching that they get is good enough that it doesn't uh, quench that enthusiasm completely. And the the worry I have in many countries is that the number of uh, inspiring science teachers is such that most kids don't get exposed to one. And so by the time they are 16 and thinking about uh, their careers and what subjects they specialize in, um, they may have turned against science. And that'll be, that'll be very sad.
0: Well, you, you mentioned young people. So I am curious what you think of the way the, the arts, the humanities and social sciences are, are kind of being sidelined in so, so many uh, universities with all the focus on STEM, you know, science technology.
1: Well, I, I think that's wrong. And I'm glad it's not happening in my university at Cambridge. But I do think that we need a fairly broad curriculum. I think that we need to cherish the humanities and ensure that everyone can follow them and do the arts and also ensure that music teaching in schools is good, etc. So uh, I think it will be very sad. And I'm very sad to to learn if in Canada the universities are cutting back on these things. The humanities and social sciences should engage us all as human beings. But scientists have an extra reason for supporting their continuing prominence in our universities, for promoting not just science, technology, engineering and maths, but the arts, broadly interpreted as well. We need an acronym STEAM, not just STEM, where the extra A is for the arts. These subjects sensitize and guide the public in assigning how science should be applied. There's an ever-widening gap between what science allows us to do and what it's prudent or ethical actually to do. I emphasize widely held anxieties that genetics and artificial intelligence may run away too fast and that our imprint on the global environment could be irreversibly damaging. Answers to these dilemmas can't come from within natural science itself. But as part of their education... All students should surely be attuned to these issues.
0: Taking stock of the different threats that we've been talking about, from AI to climate change, can you speak to how critical for the future of humanity it is, the, the decisions that politicians will be making in the next few years?
1: Well, I think that it is crucial because um, uh, well, one important point, which I think I make in my book, um, is that astronomers, of course, are used to thinking about long spans of time. And if you think in that cosmic perspective, uh, we know that the Earth has existed for 45 million centuries. But this is the first of those centuries when one species, the human species, has the power to determine the future of the entire planet. And so we are living in a special century. And, of course, the other thing, which uh, one learns from astronomy and, indeed, from other sciences, is that we are not the, the termination. Uh, our sun is less than halfway through its life. It's got six billion more years to go. And so we humans shouldn't think of ourselves as the culmination of evolution. We're maybe not even the halfway stage. And so if we screw things up now, this century, uh, we could be foreclosing the um, possibility of uh, uh, of developments even more exciting than, than anything we could conceive. And this is a, uh, a perspective which I think. Uh, should be a bit more widely uh, disseminated because it does uh, make people care more about the long term. And, uh, of course, uh, this then raises the question about um, whether uh, the Earth is a very special place, as well as us being around a special time. Is the Earth the only place where in terms of life has evolved? In which case, it's a cosmic disaster if we screw up. Or is there already life out there in many different places? That's... a the question fascinates everyone. You don't mm-hmm. need to be a scientist to find that fascinating. And it's a question where um, scientists um, are starting to, if not find definite answers, uh, they've got evidence which is going to uh, enable us to firm up the odds a bit.
0: You write that the stakes have ne Well, you just said, I mean, the stakes have never really been higher mm-hmm. than they are today. Mm-hmm. And you point out that we came out of the pandemic more or less intact in large part because of a stable electrical grid and the internet and scientists. But how real is the risk of a major social breakdown? Um,
1: Well, I mean, I I fear it is uh, serious because, well, first of all, um, we could have had a pandemic with a far higher death rate because the uh, death rate from COVID-19 was about 1%, wasn't it? But uh, um, supposing that Uh, It had been equally transmissible, but with a death rate like Ebola or something like that. Mm -hmm. That would have been an utter global catastrophe from which civilization might never recover. And, of course, my worst nightmare is an engineered pandemic, uh, which could be far worse than that, artificially released. And the other thing I worry about is, is that, you know, we haven't talked very much about AI um, but um, people worry about the um, machines taking over and superintelligence, etc. There's something in that. But I think we've got to make sure that humans stay in the loop. And, you know, if if we are recommended for surgery or um, sent to prison or something, it's not enough to say the machine says that and the machines are reliable. We need to feel that there's a human being in a loop and that we can contest the decision because these programs could have hidden bugs in them, uh, which only reveal themselves later. And the real danger is if uh, society becomes dependent on these and uh, there's a failure. I mean, if the electric grid in a major fraction of a country fails, then that leads to chaos within a few days at most. And uh, my worry is that if we get too vulnerable to that sort of thing, then um, it could be irrecoverable if something happens and uh, it's not something which can be easily repaired.
0: Martin Rees, the title of your book is The Beginning of a Sentence, If Science is to Save Us. Yes.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: How would you complete that sentence?
1: Uh, uh, Well, I'd say uh, science has to be um, a topic which everyone has a feel for um, so that they understand what scientists can plausibly tell them and where the scientists are themselves groping. They've got to understand the scope of science and the limits of science and our dependence on science, and they've got to be able to uh, decide um, which applications they want to uh, support and promote and which should be banned on ethical grounds or on prudential grounds.
0: Well, it's a very important message, and we're really grateful that you spoke to us about it. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Martin Rees is Emeritus Professor of Cosmology and Astrophysics at the University of Cambridge and a member of the UK House of Lords. His latest book is If Science is to Save Us. This episode was produced by Chris Wadzkow. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our web producer is Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, and I'm Nala Ayad.